Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights, and in particular, how advances in technology can improve the lives of people around the world. Well, this is the last episode in this current season, and it's been an absolute pleasure to do this in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a group of businesses in tech and biotech, academics, nonprofits, and community organizations, all committed to improving the health of people around the world. You can find out more about them at www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. And so to wrap off this season, I can't think of a better person to be chatting with than with the head of health at Facebook, KX Jin. KX, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Ben, uh, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So you're one of the earliest employees of Facebook. Um, and there is that, uh, I suppose, historical story of you meeting Mark Zuckerberg first day of classes at Harvard. Um, what have been the highlights of your career at Facebook to date? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's been quite a journey. Um, I, I think I'm actually one of the first uh, 20 or 30 users of Facebook all the way back in 2004. Uh, uh, graduated in 2006 and uh, came out to Silicon Valley uh, to work at Facebook for what I thought was probably going to be a year before <laughs> I'd go back to grad school. Um, I, I did my degree in computer science and psychology, mind-brain behavior at Harvard. Um, uh, so I joined Facebook as a software engineer, uh, spent about two years working on Newsfeed. I joined uh, two weeks before that product launched. So it was a very interesting time to join at the company. Uh, then I spent four to five years in ads and mm -hmm. uh, helped build our early ad system. Uh, at the end of it was responsible for ads engineering for the company. Uh, and then uh, switched back into product uh, afterward and spent a long time working on various products, uh, mainly in the Facebook app, uh, so the main app. Um, uh, worked on Facebook groups, uh, uh, Messenger, uh, some of our Messenger Kids products, uh, and, and several other things. And uh, about two years ago, I switched into my current role as head of health. Well, wonderful. I want to come on to that in a minute. Um, what fascinates you and interests you about Facebook? Yeah, it's... Um... It's it's been an interesting journey. I don't think it's anything uh, that we envisioned, uh, you know, fourteen or sixteen years ago. I don't think anyone would have predicted um, uh, a lot of these things. I, I think it's um, been fascinating around just how our products help facilitate human communication, how how they facilitate people getting together, how they f facilitate community. Uh, and, um, you know, the different ways we mirror society, the different ways we amplify things, uh, both for good and bad and yeah. how, um, you know, how we can help support, uh, the, the, the good, uh, and, and minimize some of the harms. And uh, I think it's, uh, both a tremendous opportunity as well as a tremendous responsibility. And that, that's, that's really what, uh, motivates me. Yeah. And I, I'd, I'd love to come back to some of those things later, uh, in the interview, so, so why, after a career as a as an engineer and then a founder of many of these these new tools on the uh, the Facebook platform, why health? What got you into that? Yeah, uh, it's a interesting story. I think that has been a long time coming uh, for me personally. It was a mix of both 
professional and personal. Um, on the professional side, uh, I think this is probably obvious, but we didn't really build any of our products with health-related use cases in mind. Uh, but kind of despite that, um, we were really seeing uh, people getting a lot of value out of connecting around health on our platforms. And we were consistently hearing this from our users. So uh, example around blood donation, we would mm -hmm. hear from folks, uh, especially internationally and in parts of the world that are more on the replacement model where the burden of uh, finding blood is more on the individual, uh, that our tools were tremendously useful uh, in, in helping them find donors uh, in times of need. And we would also talk with the uh, blood banks uh, and organizations uh, who are trying to build a voluntary approach. And we were also hearing from them that uh, uh, like Facebook and WhatsApp were uh, uh, widely used to, to build that. And that's just one example. Uh, uh, we also hear, we're hearing a lot on the group side, so both patient communities, clinician communities, and so on. And so we're really just seeing kind of this already happening, hearing such strong feedback around how valuable this is. And I think I was just feeling like if this is happening, even without us really thinking about and designing products in this way, right? When we built Facebook groups, we were thinking more the college soccer team. We were definitely not thinking, you know, uh, some of these massive clinician groups, for example. Um, feel like there was a real opportunity uh, and in some cases a responsibility to better support uh, these needs. And so that was something that had been building for a while on the professional side. Um, you know, on the personal side, uh, I, my wife's a physician. So like we've been talking about the intersection of our two worlds for at least a decade. Uh, and uh, I think it was really drawn home uh, for us uh, when we had our uh, son, he's now four. Uh, but uh, when he was younger, I think at seven or eight months, uh, he had a really severe anaphylactic reaction to peanut, uh, wow. like a cross cross contamination. Um, and he has like a lot of food allergies, some of which are quite severe. Um, and this is like super scary for us uh, as parents. And it was not something we'd had to really work through uh, before because neither of us have allergies and, mm. uh, you know, and really thankful for the access to care that we have. And, you know, he's obviously doing much better uh, now. Um, but one of the things that ended up being really valuable was uh, talking with other parents, both online and offline, especially those who had gone through the same thing uh, before. Uh, and we were able to connect with a few wonderful communities of parents uh, online and on Facebook, actually. Um, the, the, the irony is it took us like six months to even think to look on Facebook <laughs> for some of these communities, even though at the time I was literally leading uh, uh, the group's product. Uh, and a few of these were incredibly valuable. Uh, one of them is uh, food allergy physician moms, which is, I guess, wow. exactly like you would expect it to be. Yeah. And, and so I think like that kind of also just personally drove home some of the needs and value here. Um, it highlights some of the disparities here. Obviously, we're, we're really fortunate, um, but just connecting with some of the parents there really drove home that. Um, so I had my second kid uh, at the end of 2017 and came back from leave um, really, I think, just wanting to be more intentional about the time that I spend at work. Uh, and I'd been talking about some of this internally for a while, had a had a really good productive conversations with Mark and some of the other uh, executives. Uh, uh, and I'm just super grateful we were able to make an investment here as part of our social impact work. And um, that's kind of how this team got started uh, and my, my involvement 
uh, and it got started uh, starting around middle of 2018. Well, fascinating. And I, I want to come on to to talk about how Facebook has uh, helped us get through this period of COVID and, and, and indeed how it's working in other parts of the world to support particularly community organizations. But there's one thing that you've been very vocal about, and, and it's something I believe in very strongly too, um, and that is you're not a clinician um, uh, and that you've been clear that you don't believe that there is the need for a clinical or medical background to be doing the job that, that you do. Uh, now, don't fall off your chair. I have a background in uh, theology and um, and and then medical ethics. So so I come at this, uh, I think, very intentionally not wanting to be a clinician and thinking that there's a value in joining the dots in the way people live because everybody wants to be healthy. But could you talk about your reasons for uh, for feeling and, and and for sort of knowing that that's not a crucial element of your job? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this. Uh, I think you don't need to be a clinician to understand the importance of health, right? This is probably the one thing that affects everyone. And I think the reality is that many different perspectives are needed to address health issues. Absolutely the clinical perspective. So I don't want to be downplaying that. That's an incredibly important and critical perspective. Uh, uh, to, to include, but you also need to think about the patient or individual perspective, their friends, family, caregivers, uh, and you know, public health and population health experts in addition to just uh, individual health. And um, you know, I view part of my job is making sure all of these perspectives are represented in our work. And that's really how our team is shaped. We have people from all of these various kinds of backgrounds, including clinicians, uh, health policy experts, uh, you know, in the context of COVID, epidemiology. Uh, and we also work with a lot of groups outside of Facebook, from the WHO to Ministries of Health and patient advocates. And I really believe that the best outcomes here, and like in a lot of things, happen when people with different backgrounds and disciplines come together and bring their complementary expertise toward a common goal, which is a healthier world uh, uh, in, in our case. And I think Facebook's role in health is to help facilitate uh, bringing some of these people and organizations together uh, in ways that improve health, uh, especially through online uh, channels. And I think that's what Facebook is uh, uniquely positioned to do here. Yeah, it's so funny because this is sort of what we were trying to do with the AIDS movement um, in the 80s and 90s, mostly by fax and telephone. Um, but it seems to me that the uh, there's sort of been a really interesting aha moment for Facebook as COVID starts. And, um, you know, it's been a critical tool for all of us to stay in touch with loved ones. Um, uh, my parents are in the uh, middle of nowhere in the United Kingdom, and and Facebook has been invaluable. Apart from my mother accusing me of breaking her Facebook every time that we that we try and chat, um, but I've been really surprised at the way in which, particularly community organisations, have been able to to take the tools that exist now and use them for use them for good. And the example I I, I often use, and she was a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago is a case manager called Dawn Skelton from 
the California Prostitutes Education Project over in Oakland, which is the main HIV tester and supporter for marginalized and homeless people living across the Bay. And, you know, she's just been live streaming and making sure that all of her clients have Facebook or, or other social media accounts, but primarily Facebook, and then live streaming on a regular basis. There's a food bank here. You can get a COVID test here. Our mobile clinics are going to be in this place. Come and get a shower. And it's had extraordinary uh, impact, KX. Um, and for me, you know, as a, a sort of a public health communications person, I was joking with someone from the Clinton Health Access Initiative yesterday. We, we used to work on rapid reports, policy reports, back at the beginning of the uh, of the last decade. And rapid meant six months. You know, now um, I can get a live stream together on a policy issue and it's a matter of hours. Um, and so, I mean, how, how surprised have you been that Facebook has been used to build what can only be described as resilience, really, in, in this way? Yeah, that's, uh, there's so many directions you can take that uh, question. Because um, uh, I think the reality is Facebook, and not just Facebook, online services in general, uh, are being used in a lot of different ways. And I think some of the the, the more positive ones, you know, just stepping out of public health for a second, just staying connected with your friends and family, especially uh, when when the, there's reasons why you're physically distanced. Um, uh, my parents as well. Uh, 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 they're actually just down the street, but for a long time, they're older, older Americans, right? And uh, so they're kind of sheltering in place and trying to maintain distance. And um, it was really great that you know I was able to see them on the big screen via video calls every day. And it's not something that I was able to do growing up with my grandparents, right, yeah. who were in China. And um, uh, I think it's just like tremendously uh, great that uh, the, these tools exist for the human personal connection, first and foremost. Uh, and we, we were seeing pretty substantial increases in uh, demand for some of these messaging and more private services earlier in the pandemic, uh, to the point where we had to scramble quite a bit to uh, uh, just keep our services up and running and reliable, um, uh, which I think we generally were able to do, thankfully. Um, and then I think the other angle you talked about, uh, which is more around uh, community organization and people organizing uh, there. And I think there's a tremendous amount of potential here, both pre-pandemic, right? You, you have a lot of these patient advocacy groups and so on, or clinical clinician groups already organizing uh, on Facebook, and then obviously accelerated uh, post in a lot of ways. And lastly, I think you mentioned the like faster ways to learn and disseminate data, disseminate information, uh, and, and even like get data uh, from uh, Facebook and from the people on Facebook. Uh, and that's also an area that I think, again, existed before uh, the pandemic, but I think has been accelerated in a lot of ways uh, uh, during it. And uh, I think there's there's a lot of potential there as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, uh... And 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 so it's been particularly interesting to me to see a group of Southern African women, uh, both having a group, one of the groups you would have, you know, helped build the technology to create, 
uh, that provide support to each other on where to find their HIV medicines and how to manage with you know difficult domestic circumstances if they're trapped at home with with people who may be abusers. Um, and they they also have a live show that that goes out across quite a few countries. And yes, this was happening before, but but never with the same sort of intensity that that COVID has forced on us. And um, and I, I I'm sort of don't want to seem overly simplistic, but to take you back to Harvard and the computer science uh, course that Harvard offers, offers particularly the uh, mind, body, and behavior components of uh, sort of the cognitive science of things, and I've I've always been fascinated by that because it's about it seems to me adapting um, uh, and and um, improving the ways. Uh, humans do things. It's about support, not replacing them, not forcing them to do things, but to sort of make it easier. Um, and am I being overly simplistic in sort of thinking things in those terms? I think it's a pretty good characterization. Um, a lot of the the technical advances over the last decade, I don't think have like fundamentally changed human behavior, right? Like these behaviors are were always always there. I think it's made it easier to, to do some things, right? Like, whereas, I don't know, a decade or two ago, if I wanted to talk to my grandparents in China, it was like a phone call that was a dollar a minute on a terrible connection, right? And 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 now it, it's just so much easier to do that. Um, uh, same thing around a lot of the, the COVID response, like to be able to learn from uh, other clinicians worldwide, you know, a decade ago would have been um, that was happening and clearly a real need, but now you're seeing this play out in Facebook and in Twitter, Facebook groups, uh, uh, and so on. So I think it's it's really um, a lot of the technical shifts we've seen over the last decade have really just made connecting easier. And I think there's a tremendous amount of potential for good here. Uh, some of the examples you mentioned, and there's plenty of others. And I think there's also some, some risks as well. And I think the the shared challenge we have is how do we figure out how to bend these technologies for the good in the long run, uh, and and I am optimistic about that. Well, that that's right because as you point out, there's another side of it, isn't there? The the yeah, how do you balance freedom of expression um, with um, you know accuracy and preventing, I suppose, hate speech? And I know you've given a lot of thought to that. Um, and and again, if if one sort of thinks about the the algorithms and algorithms as a way of helping people, um, you know, do what they do in more effective ways, it, that's inevitably you know for good and for bad. So so how do you see Facebook walking that that thin line, as it were? Yeah, it's a really important question. So thank you for for asking it. Um, you know, I think it's important to contextualize that misinformation isn't really unique to Facebook or online channels in general. This is something that has existed for a long time. Uh, I mean, even if you're just talking about vaccines uh, in the Western world, I think the Wakefield paper was published in 1998, right? yeah. uh, uh, which is uh, well before the second wave. Um, and I think, you know, outside of the Western world, there's actually very real reasons why people might be distrustful uh, of, of, of some of uh, uh, some of these things. Um, that said, I think like, you know, one of the lenses we want to apply is where is Facebook really amplifying things versus just mirroring uh, things? And on the misinformation side, 
Uh, we focus a lot in reducing distribution of such content, and we work with fact-checking partners as well as uh, uh, organizations like the WHO to determine this. Um, and in cases where some of this content can lead to imminent harm, we remove it. Um, I think we've made a lot of progress here. A lot of my personal focus last year was actually organizing some of our vaccine uh, misinformation efforts, uh, making it so that if you search for terms like vaccines on Facebook, uh, you get reasonable results from you know credible sources there. Uh, but we also have a lot more to do, including in getting better around viral content, uh, the content that gets a lot of distribution. And I'd say like earlier in the pandemic, the first pandemic video was one that I think got more distribution than um, it probably should have because we were just a little bit slower in, yeah. in, in um, enforcing some of our policies. I think, you know, more recently, Pandemic 2, we did a better job on uh, uh, from that perspective, again, just enforcing our current policies. But I think we have uh, more more work to do there. Um, I think the other point and real learning here is that, or at least for me, is misinformation really thrives in the absence of credible and trusted information. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, having talked with a lot of folks, parents uh, who had some hesitancy around vaccines, like they all fundamentally want what's best for their children, right? And and so they're, they're just looking for answers to their questions. And they're going to be looking online, they're going to be looking offline. And uh, if, if the credible trusted information isn't there when, when they're looking, that's where kind of misinformation really thrives. So it's, it's just so important that we collectively meet people where they are here uh, uh, with empathy. Uh, I think a lot of uh, just like the, the, the empathetic approach is incredibly important. And uh, that's why uh, we've also been working so much with a lot of these partners to to, to provide that information uh, and, and ideally provide it in an accessible and trusted way. And I think one of the things that, um, you know, Facebook and others can do is, is, is help public health officials. We're, we're, we know what we need to say, but quite frankly, we can be absolutely the worst messenger. Um, uh, I, I happen to be on the, the, the board of MTV Staying Alive Foundation that, that has spent its career, um, you know, since the mid '90s, just building, you know, dramas, soap operas in Southern Africa about about HIV and sexual reproductive health in ways that that kids understand. And they've actually done a series of um, short videos alone together that you know talk about the issues with COVID. And they can do that in a way that perhaps. Um, you know, older middle-aged men like me and and colleagues at WHO and other places, we may know what needs to be said, but we're not going to be respected um, vehicles and messengers of that. And so I'm very interested in the way that, you know, the credibility of Facebook has been able to, to get those messages across. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's um, one of the areas I'm most optimistic about going forward. It's It's really about how do we help drive offline behavior change through online channels? And in order to do that well, uh, I think it really requires a combining of different disciplines, right? The Like a lot of the public health experts we've talked to um, are incredibly clear on what behavior changes actually need to happen, like whether that's mask wearing or physical distancing in the context of the pandemic or, you know, vaccinations, right? 
Um, I think the, the challenge from like that to actually helping make the behavior happen uh, is, is pretty massive. And uh, I think this is where some of these other disciplines, including public health communication, right? Uh, that, that's, that's a sub-discipline. Uh, as well as just bringing in like media or advertising or some of these other um, perspectives, I think uh, is going to be really fruitful. And the, the good news is I think there are already examples here of mm. successes that, that have um, happened over the last few years and in the context of the pandemic that we can learn from. Uh, a couple ones that, that I'm familiar with. Um, uh, so HPV vaccination rates in yeah. Ireland uh, and Denmark uh, uh, both declined quite a bit uh, over like five years ago or five or six years ago. And uh, both of those countries were actually able to arrest those declines and start moving uh, them, them back up. And I think the approach was a very collaborative cross-sector approach, fundamentally meeting people where they are with empathetic messaging and meeting parents to where they are with empathetic messaging across online and offline channels. And I think it's like a great success story and something that can be built off of. Yeah. Uh, in South Africa, there's this program called Mom Connect uh, that has going on for many years now. Uh, and uh, I think they recent it's it's for expectant mothers to enroll uh, uh, stage based messaging over initially SMS and now WhatsApp. Uh, and I think at this point, over half of all expectant mothers in South Africa enroll in this program, uh, and uh, the majority of those people enroll uh, on WhatsApp. Uh, as well. And so there's some real, real, real um, interesting things there. There's a lot more, but I think a lot of this, like, how do we, how do we work together to, to, to understand online to offline behavior change is incredibly important. And and I suppose for, for some of our listeners and viewers who don't fully understand these things, WhatsApp is a company of Facebook, right? It's um, That's right. Um, so I think you know, Facebook, the company, which includes the actual Facebook app, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, and a few other uh, uh, properties as well. Uh, and, and certainly across Africa and Southeast Asia, WhatsApp is absolutely essential. And I'm, I'm uh, loosely involved in a number of networks, whether it's for HIV treatment or uh, the experiences of women surviving breast cancer. There's a whole lot of things going on there. Um, from the public health perspective, KX, there was one other question I've been really dying to ask you, and it's about monitoring and evaluation. And um, obviously, uh, strict regulation and strict practice around um, how we uh, identify advances uh, in biomedical research, absolutely clear, absolutely needed. Um, it's been it's been more of a challenge, frankly, in the behavioral science and programmatic program implementation areas. Um, it's become more important in the last decade because you know money has been stagnating for global health. But for those of us working in public health. Emony is necessary, but it sends a, a, a shot of fear down our backs because it can be so complex. And, um, you know, what I would be really interested in knowing is whether you've uh, experienced that in, um, uh, you know, how you've adapted monitoring and evaluation in your environment. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the this is incredibly important, right? Because at the end of the day, 
uh, it's not how much people engage on something on Facebook or WhatsApp that matters. It's whether they're actually taking the behavior change that's having the expected impact uh, from, from the health perspective. Um, and we've attacked this in a few ways. I, I don't think we have all the answers and there's no silver bullet, uh, but, but a few interesting things we've done. Um, uh, the blood donations product is a really good example. So when we rolled out our blood donations product, uh, uh, in the United States, uh, we were able to do a staged rollout in conjunction with our partners and essentially basically say half the country got it on day one and the rest got it, uh, you know, like eight, 12, 16 weeks later. Uh, and this allowed us to do a difference in different study or really our partners to do that. Uh, and uh, the Red Cross and a lot of the other partners actually have quite good uh, data uh, on a per blood bank basis for just how many people donated on a given day and how many first time donors uh, came in as well. And one of the really interesting results was we were able to show that um, there was a 19% increase countrywide uh, in first time uh, blood donors showing up at the blood bank themselves uh, through um, uh, through the rollout of our tool. So that's an example. I think we need to do a lot more of this uh, in general in partnership with uh, the, 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 the partners we work with. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount going on actually in the context of COVID uh, right now because I'd say, and this isn't Facebook specific, but I think a lot of partners are probably running some of the largest scale uh, public you know, uh, behavior change campaigns that have really been done in my lifetime. Uh, and I think it's quite important. Uh, we, we learn what's working and what's not so we can focus on uh, uh, the, the things that are working and, you know, scaling those things out. Uh, and along those lines, uh, there was a really interesting study. It, it needs to be replicated uh, uh, that came out of MIT uh, earlier this year, um, uh, where um, uh, essentially, I think a Nobel Prize winning uh, uh, economist uh, recorded a set of videos um, uh, and then partnered with uh, Reliance Geo in India to send these videos, uh, short videos over SMS to uh, um, uh, people uh, in, in India. And the, the videos are really, you know, exhorting the importance of reporting symptoms to a community health worker and limiting, you know, travel between villages. And they were able to set it up in such a way that they um, had a control arm that didn't receive the video and then were able to show um, pretty significant effects in uh, um, reported symptoms to health workers as well as uh, decreases in mobility. And I think the more we can learn from you know, studies like that, the better. And that had, I think, all of the elements you mentioned earlier around it was a trusted messenger that was widely known uh, 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 in that community with a message that they, I think, had tested and honed a little bit for the the, the, the norms of the community and delivered in a medium, uh, you know, SMS and video that that was resonant with people. So uh, I think there's a lot more, uh, a lot more along these lines that needs to be done. Okay. Well, KX, uh, just one other question then, really around, if I may, your nonprofit's expertise. Um, you've you've spoken about health, but education is also very important to you. Um, and it strikes me that um, you know it's always very good to 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 give people the opportunity to profile their their nonprofit experience, their board experience. You're on the board um, of an organization called um, Chalk Bear that looks at um, uh, using the media to 
to improve understanding how to improve schools. Um, how did you get into that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so Chalkbeat is a nonprofit. Chalkbeat. Sorry, I can't read my uh, own writing. <laughs> Chalkbeat, like a journalist yeah. beat, right? Chalkbeat. Uh, they're, they're a nonprofit news organization uh, based in the United States that is really committed to uh, local reporting around education disparities for policy change. And so they have a really interesting model uh, that or I guess we uh, have a really interesting model that's embedded uh, in the local communities. So we have a bureau in Memphis, in Newark, uh, in Detroit, and then you know by like seven or eight other local communities. Um, I I've been involved in this organization for on the board for at least five years. I know the CEO for uh, actually we're on the high school newspaper together, and so then we went to college together. Um, and yeah, I've been really struck by how much overlap there is in some of the work that Chalkbeat does and some of the work um, uh, we're also doing, I'm doing on the health side. Uh, a lot of health issues are also inherently local. There's a real need for uh, both accountability journalism and uh, service journalism here. And I think one of the most, most heartbreaking and kind of like is difficult things was uh, a lot of parents uh, rely on schools for food, like meals for their kids, right? And so when uh, all the schools shut down, this became a massive problem. And uh, what Chalkbeat ended up doing was um, uh, creating these maps, uh, basically around like, if you're a parent who is reliant on uh, meals for your kids from the school system, here's where you can go to get meals uh, for the school systems that are still offering them. And those, those food maps actually were like the most used thing that Chalkbeat had ever produced. And I think it just really shows that like a lot of these these issues and the disparities that are being magnified here are, are quite interrelated um, and a real need for both the services to help reduce some of these disparities as well as um, awareness uh, uh, of the ones that are currently available because I yeah. don't think they're they're fully utilized. And and of course another uh, nonprofit you're involved in it's our partner for this show is the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. And, you know, that's about bringing the benefits of uh, technology to, um, you know, building global health equity. And it's also about building greater awareness about health in the Silicon Valley uh, field. And, and I would love to know your thoughts, your advice on how we might be able to build the alliance as a champion for engaging more tech companies in health? It's a great question. I mean, I'd say the alliance has already been incredibly successful in convening and bringing a lot of these organizations together. Uh, I think you know, we were talking at the beginning about how we first met uh, earlier this uh, this year under the auspices of the uh, alliance. Um, uh, so I think already from that perspective, it's been quite successful. Um, you know, I, I really think a lot of, um, there's a lot we can each learn from each other. Uh, uh, and I think we actually do share a lot of these goals um, uh, on the health side. And I'm just like excited to both continue to have some of these conversations, share these contexts. Uh, and then how, like, find ways to to take concrete steps together uh, to realize some of these goals. Yeah, so I think there's a, uh, a a real mutual conversation to be built there that is is sort of fairly unique to to the Bay Area. 
Yeah, and I think there's like some things that are relatively easy for certain tech companies are like really hard for um, uh, 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 parts of the public health community and vice versa, right? right? right. And I think, and I think like really understanding each organization's unique strengths and then figuring out how uh, how we can apply those together uh, toward common problems is is the real opportunity here. Well. <clears throat> um... KX, we've we've sort of come to the end of our time. Um, you know, normally I ask our guests, you know, how do they how do they stay sane during this period of uh, of lockdown? But uh, it sounds like you've got your hands full, both with the company and with the family. But any advice you can give us? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I should be asking you for advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh no! Don't don't be asking me. We binge watched the entire narrative chronology of Aliens last week, so I'm probably <laughs> not the people to ask. Um, I mean, I, I'd say it's like a really um, unprecedented situation. I'm you know super grateful for the opportunity to be able to uh, contribute on the professional side in in some way, uh, and I'm sure, as with everyone, uh, there's just a lot going on. And obviously we're much more fortunate than most. Yeah. So I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility too to, to try to help. Well, KX, thank you so much for being on the show. We we really appreciate it. Um, we hope to be working much more closely with you in the future. And certainly your head of health partnerships, Praveen Raja, will be joining us um, in the next season of uh, A Shot in the Arm podcast. But just to say thank you so much for everything that you're doing and stay healthy and stay safe. Thank you. Same to you. Cheers. Well, that's it for this episode and indeed this season. Our thanks to KX. Thanks also to Sarah Anderson from the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. Thanks to Erica Spera from NewsDoc Media, our producer and director. And of course, a big thanks to you. Now, we'll only be gone a couple of weeks, but don't hesitate to contact us if you have any suggestions or thoughts. You can find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook at Shot Arm Podcast. And you can find this and every other episode on the podcast platform of your choice. So have a safe time and a healthy time. And don't forget to wear your mask.